Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. The empty tomb delivers. Normally, usually, empty things do not deliver. I'm going to show you some pictures. We'll just do a little survey here at 9.30 this morning. You just tell me good or bad when I show you a picture of an empty thing. Here's the first one, an empty wallet. Is that good or bad? The next one is an empty gas tank. Is that good or bad? The next one's an empty refrigerator. Is that good or bad? How about this sign I saw online posted out of an In-N-Out burger shop, out of hamburger meat, good or bad? Here's the last one, good or bad, the empty tomb. It's so good. It's so good. Just the idea of that tomb being empty speaks volumes about our Savior, about our lives, about our sin, about our past, about our future. If you're taking notes with me today, you can write this in. The empty tomb delivers. I'd like to begin today reading in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28. When I get down to the part where the angel is speaking, we'll all read that out loud together. I'll tell you when we get there. Matthew 28 verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, let's read this part together, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. I want to talk this Easter about this place where he lay. Last fall, last October, my wife Lauren and I went to a play about Jesus and uh, it was incredible. It was wonderful. And going into it, uh, I thought I would be like uh, very prepared of what to expect, right? Uh, uh, you know, there's certain people I was expecting to see, obviously Jesus, uh, people in his family, disciples, famous miracles that he's done, uh, uh, just all of those things. I knew the villains were, thought I knew all the characters. And uh, there was something that bothered me as we went through it. It bothered me in a good way. Like I couldn't get it out of my mind. And it was this one character who kept popping up over and over throughout the story who I'd heard of, I knew of, but I'd never thought very much about before. His name's Joseph of Arimathea. And it's not like he was a star. It's not like he had a lot of lines. It's just I'm seeing him and thinking about him a lot more than I've ever thought about him before. So I left the play and thought, you know what, I'm going to study Joseph of Arimathea. I wonder if anyone's ever done that before. I wonder how many resources there will be. Turns out there's like whole books about Joseph of Arimathea and a lot of people have given him a lot of thought before. Has that ever happened to you where you'll have something that like blows your mind and you're like, why didn't anybody tell me about this? And all your friends and family go, we've been trying to tell you that. Has that ever happened to you before? I've been on both sides of that. And so it's just fascinating. Joseph Arimathea, mentioned in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is incredible, it's remarkable, but only 16 verses in total. You just get little snapshots in each Gospel of this Joseph, so I've kind of 
cut out those snapshots and sewn them together to see the whole story and get a picture of this most interesting man who lived in Jesus' day and was responsible for the place where Jesus was buried. There are three things I want to tell you about him. And just for clarity's sake here, this is not Joseph of Mary and Joseph. And this is not Joseph you may be familiar with who's accounted for in the Old Testament, who's betrayed by his brothers. And uh, there's been a lot written and sung and said about him as well. This is a Joseph you may not be familiar with. So let me tell you about him. Joseph started out as a secret follower of Jesus. We know that Joseph was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. These were the religious leaders in and out of the temple synagogues. They weren't rabbis, but they would oversee the religious teachings. And uh, they added a lot of oral tradition to God's word. And then the problem with that is they would treat their oral tradition as equal to God's word, which was forbidden because God said you couldn't add to his word. And Jesus would push back on them often. A couple of quotes from him here is he would say, yeah, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they preach. Jesus would also say, they worship me in vain, it's all for show, and their teachings are merely human rules. They did not know God as they should, and most Pharisees did not recognize Jesus. They saw him as competition for their power and authority, and so it puts Jesus on a collision course with the ruling council of the Pharisees, another group called the Sanhedrin, and Joseph is also a member of the Sanhedrin. They were, best way to describe it is they were like the Supreme Court of Israel, and they settled on cases of the law. Because the Sanhedrin was so against, so anti-Jesus, Joseph is a secret follower of Jesus. These were his peers. He doesn't want to rock the boat. He he, He doesn't want to lose his job. They were respected in the community, but they did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. But in Joseph's heart, He's starting to sense the fact that this Jesus could be the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord of all. We may be looking at God in the flesh. And the Sanhedrin does not only not believe that, they believe Jesus is a blasphemer, a threat, and they begin to scheme to arrest him and have him killed. They end up working out a deal with one of Jesus' followers, Judas. To, de- to betray Jesus. And when Jesus is arrested, uh, he's taken before the Sanhedrin and taken before the Roman governor. They take him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And Jesus is taken through six trials, three Jewish, three Roman. And they're all a sham. They couldn't get their story straight. The witnesses weren't credible. It was illegal to have a trial at night. And after all of this, do you know what they find Jesus guilty of? Absolutely nothing. They even say, I find no guilt in this man. Except for one thing the Sanhedrin can pin on him is that he claims to be God. So one thing they find him guilty of. So they bring him before Pontius Pilate and convince Pilate to crucify Jesus. Of course, we know now that Jesus is giving up his life as a sacrifice. He's giving up freely to pay a ransom for us. And the soldiers spit on him, punch him, mock him, beat him, jeer him. And somewhere in the darkness, somewhere in the shadows, in the midst of those trials is our guy. Luke 23, 50 through 51. 
Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now the reason he did not agree is because he's beginning to believe. Jesus is not a blasphemer. He tells the truth. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures and prophecy. We know something else about Joseph. We know this from the Gospel of John, that Joseph is also a friend of a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is also a member of the Sanhedrin. They were both secretly trying to find out more about Jesus. Nicodemus actually met one time at night with Jesus. That's why I call him Nick at night. And the reason they met with him, he met with him at night, was because he didn't want people to know that he's not opposed to Jesus. In fact, he's kind of interested. He wants to find out more. But it was in this meeting where Jesus spoke the most famous words in all the Bible. John 3.16, Jesus says to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life Nicodemus wrestles with these words could it be could it be that the key to eternal life and the way to God is this man before me Jesus Christ now we have two secret followers or secret admirers if you will of Jesus And just five verses later, in that same meeting, Jesus says, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Jesus is calling his followers, whether that be Nicodemus, whether that be Joseph, whether that be me, whether that be you, to come out of the night, out of the shadows, out of the secrecy, out of the darkness, out of the darkness of sin, the secrecy of sin or the secrecy of our faith, and come into the light. But some are struggling with this very common tactic of the enemy, one that Joseph struggled with. Like We know why Joseph was keeping this a secret. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because what? He feared. He feared the Jewish leaders. And fear is still what holds many of Jesus' followers back today. But here's some good news. I want to show you what he does here. If you're taking notes, you might write this in. Joseph goes public with his faith. He goes from being a secret follower to being a bold follower. He goes all in. But it was a big risk. And he goes public with his faith at great expense. He makes a bold request. He goes public with his faith when Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now that's a bold move. Pilate is the one who just sentenced Jesus to be crucified. Joseph is a prominent member of the council who just asked Pilate to crucify Jesus, and now Joseph is asking for the body. He's showing his care, his love for Christ. He's going from being a secret follower to being the one who takes the initiative to go to Pilate himself. And what does he do next? He willingly serves Christ. Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, and wrapped it in the linen. Joseph's the one who takes down the body. 
Joseph's the one who goes boldly to Pilate. I, where is Peter? Where is Jesus' family? Where are the disciples? Where are all the followers who were just shouting Hosanna not a week ago? Joseph is the one I can picture it as he takes most likely a ladder to the cross and he has another person with him. The Gospel of John tells us that Nicodemus is with him. And they go to the cross and I can just see it as Joseph climbs that ladder and goes up to Jesus' feet and wipes and washes off his feet and pulls the nail out of his feet and goes up the ladder and washes off his hands and wipes off his hands and pulls the nails out of his hands and lowers Jesus' body off the cross. Washes Jesus' body. John tells us that he and Nicodemus put 75 pounds of spices on Jesus' body. They wrap him in linen and he and Nicodemus carry Jesus to that tomb. Joseph takes Jesus back to to his own property, his tomb. He's giving up his standing, his prestige, his reputation, his leadership position, maybe even his income. All these things are no longer the most important thing. Joseph has found the most important thing, and he gives up his new tomb. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. Matthew 27, 59. No dead body had been buried in that particular tomb before. So usually, uh, a tomb would belong to a family. And when someone died, uh, they would place the body on a slab inside the tomb. And then after the body decomposed, the family would come back and they would take the bones and stack the bones. This is kind of gruesome, I know, but they would stack the bones in a bone box and then they would put it on a shelf in that tomb. So a tomb may have several bone boxes in it. Uh, This is an actual picture of an actual bone box uh, from that time period uh, in Jerusalem with the inscription James on it. Now, Joseph's tomb was new. It had not been used before. There's no body in there, no bone boxes in there. And he's the one that dug it out. And since it had never been used before, it's a big deal to give it away to someone. It's a big sacrifice. He's serving Christ. He's demonstrating his love for Christ. He's making it to public to everyone whose side he's really been on here. Like maybe the council gave a a secret vote. He's revealing what his vote was. And he's willing to risk everything. And there are today many people who are secret followers of Jesus. Maybe there's something in you that caused you to believe a little bit, but you've never committed yourself to Jesus, and you show up for God every once in a while, and you're secretly rooting for God, and you're rooting for Christians, but you're not living for God. And lately you've been wrestling, you've heard this still small voice to follow him, to be more public with your faith, or to be more confident in it, to consider God when you make decisions. Maybe even being willing to process what it would mean to be a Christian. Process that with your family or with those close to you. It's not always easy. In fact, Jesus said it would be difficult. But you have to die to yourself to really live for Him. 
I want you to know that every weekend uh, or every service this weekend, we've been offering baptism. First step to go public with your faith. First step of saying, uh, I believe and I'm identifying with Christ. We've had uh, eight people sign up this weekend to be baptized. Some young people who've made that choice, some adults. What is baptism? It's once you believe in him, baptism is the act of being fully immersed in the water. Baptism identifies you with Christ and his family. That We've had this unifying experience and public symbol of being immersed in the water as Jesus was in his baptism, but it's a symbol of Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection. Romans 6, 4 says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now the message of someone's baptism is not, I was a really bad person and I'm going to try and be a better person now. That's not the picture. The baptism, what the word actually means is to be dipped under the water. It's representing the fact that I could never live a good enough life. I could never be perfect. And Christ has accomplished that for me. That you identify with the death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus and God is raising me as well. If you're feeling led to be baptized, to join us in that this weekend, we'd love to help you with it. Maybe you want to come back uh, to the next service and be baptized at the next service. Our team actually worked because they looked and they saw that in the Bible, uh, no one waits. They believe and then they were baptized. They believe and then they were immediately baptized. So our team has worked. If you want to be baptized in this service, you could do that. When the worship team comes back up and the music starts, just go out to the lobby. Someone will be there to meet you. We could help baptize baptize you in this service if God is leading you to do that. To say that all the things that this planet has to offer, I'm choosing Jesus Christ. And when you do that in your life, like Joseph of Arimathea, you begin just what Joseph experiences, a miracle, write that in, of Jesus. A miracle of Jesus. He took the body, wrapped it, placed it in Jesus' tomb. Uh, You may know that uh, tombs were sealed with a large stone. They'd roll a large stone in front of the tomb and and seal that tomb. Who was the one to steal the tomb? Or seal the tomb? It was Joseph of Arimathea. Check this out. He set the stone into place. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb. Imagine this not-so-secret follower, now a bold follower of Jesus, and he's the one to roll the stone. And then what does he do? He went away. He walks away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite of the tomb. They're sitting there opposite of the tomb watching this take place, watching Jesus' body enter. Joseph sealed the tomb. And Joseph goes away, walks away. I've done that walk many times. Not from a tomb, but from a a graveside moment. And there's a moment where uh, everyone walks away. And you walk away and you ponder the deepest things of life. You wonder, what's next? What now? What does this mean now? And you think about life and the meaning of life. And the creator of life. And I'm sure Joseph is pondering what will happen now. Friday night, Saturday night, Jesus is dead and buried. Joseph's position is dead and buried. 
But then comes Sunday morning and Mary and the other Mary, they, they wonder aloud as they go to the tomb. We watch Joseph seal the tomb. Who's going to help us roll away the tomb so that they can go in and help with the body? The stone, they get there, the stone is already rolled away. The angel is there. There's strips of linen, but no body. And their grief turns to joy. Matthew 28, yet again, he is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. I, lo- I love that line. Like, you don't love that as much as I do, I guess. But I love that where it's just like, mission accomplished. Like, I'm the messenger, message sent. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. I'd love to have been there when Joseph came to see the tomb that he had dug out empty, grieving on Friday and Saturday, but on the third day he discovers not, as all, not all is lost, in fact, all is gained, and whatever I gave up for the cause of Christ is worth it. The silence of Saturday turns into the singing of Sunday. I know uh, many of you love history, and this weekend, this very weekend, is the 73rd anniversary of what's known as the Easter Parade after World War II. This anniversary is timely because the way the calendar lands is uh, Good Friday, Silent Saturday, Easter Sunday are on the same, same days, like it would have been Easter Sunday, April of this date in 1949 as well. And the war was over, but the Soviets, once our allies against Germany, had cut off two million residences of West Berlin from the rest of the world in an attempt to starve out the city and take control. And the situation was dire. The residents of the bombed-out city were without food, without fuel, without coal. It was a life-and-death situation for those who, during the war, were our enemy. Germany was our enemy. Now the war is over, and Russia is on the move and trying to take over. And they've squeezed off the city. The Allies, led by the United States, begin to fly into this war-torn city through a very narrow corridor. And the Allied planes were the only contact that these two million residences had with the outside world. And every day for a year, 15 months, planes would land and deliver grain, milk, coal, sometimes even chocolate. Everything needed to keep them to going for one more day without starving to death, without freezing to death. This was their only hope. But Easter weekend, there was an Easter parade of planes where the Allies made the decision to overwhelm the Soviet blockade with goods. So on April 15th at noon, lasting for 24 hours, crews worked overtime to deliver more tonnage than had ever been delivered in a 24-hour period. There were 1,400 flights. That's one plane taking off and landing every minute. And that day is the day that is known for breaking the blockade. Within eight days, the Soviets made the decision to lift the blockade because the Soviets realized after the Easter parade blitz that no matter what they did, the Allies would stop at nothing to save these people and to save that city. And Germany, who was once our enemy, became our ally. Here's my point. Every time the people of Berlin 
heard an empty plane flying out of their city, they knew that what they needed had just been delivered. Friend, every time you hear the words, He is risen, every time you hear that the tomb is empty, you can rest assured that everything you have ever needed in life has just been delivered. The empty tomb delivers. It does. And yeah, you can clap for that. The empty tomb (laughs) delivers. The empty tomb delivers. Watch this miracle after miracle for those who trust in Jesus Christ. It delivers miracle after miracle for true believers. I put some of the miracles on the bottom of your outline. I just went till I ran out of room, then I made it smaller, and I went till I went out of room again. The miracle of forgiveness, the miracle of heaven, the miracle of redemption, the miracle miracle of justification, the miracle of the Holy Spirit, the miracle of sanctification, the miracle of adoption, the miracle of being rescued from the kingdom of darkness, the miracle of freedom from the law, the miracle of being a child of God, of spiritual blessings, of having access to God in prayer, the miracle of an eternal inheritance, The miracle of having a purpose and a mission in the midst of trials. The miracle of propitiation. The miracle of regeneration. The miracle of sealing. The sealing of the Spirit. Miracle of being set free from the fear of death. The miracle of being rescued from the wrath of God and the judgment of hell. And you might say, well, I don't even know what some of those mean. And I would say that's exactly the point. That the empty tomb delivers miracle after miracle, ones you don't even know about yet. Ones God wants you to to discover as you live a life of faith in Him. There will be times of need in your life. There will be times of crisis in your life where God wants to provide for you, where He wants to show Himself faithful. Will you be there to trust Him? Will you be there to receive from Him? It's why many of us will be back here next week. It's why the church doesn't gather once a year. We gather first of every week to grab hold of the promises to grab hold of our faith, to let Jesus grab hold of us. The empty tomb delivers. We've seen the testimony of Joseph today. One of the things we like to do when we can is hear from someone in our church who uh, will share their testimony of uh, just what God has done uh, with their faith in in them and how God has provided for them and some of their obstacles. Last week, Robin Corder gave her testimony in here, and I thought it was tremendous. I wanted to share it with you uh, this weekend, Easter weekend. So let's watch this together. Hello, my name is Robin Corder. Pastor Ryland asked me to share how forgiveness has given me the peace and hope that I needed to sustain me through the difficult seasons of my life. I was born in Washington, D.C., Both of my parents worked at Andrews Air Force Base as civil servants. When I was 18 months old, my father was transferred to Scott Air Force Base in Illinois. Some of my favorite childhood memories are of long road trip vacations. My father would pile us all in our 1965 Plymouth Fury and see how far he could drive in a day. My mom would ask to stop at a Howard Johnson's because she liked their ice cream. But Dad would say, no, let's go just a little bit further. The Fury had no air conditioning, so we would zip down the highway with all four windows rolled down, the wind whipping our hair. We saw a lot of country out of that Plymouth. When I was 13, my dad was transferred to Richards Gebauer. I graduated from Grandview High School. I married my high school sweetheart, 
Ken Corder. I got a job at the Marine Corps Finance Center on Bannister Road, and Ken worked as a brick mason with his family business. We had three children, Kelly, Katie, and Robbie. Eventually, we started our own masonry business. It was difficult to start our business, but Ken was enthusiastic, outgoing, and determined. We worked hard at it, and over time, we brought our own equipment, and Ken even hired a couple of employees. In December of 1996, Ken began to experience some back pain that he thought was related to his work as a mason, but the pain continued to increase. An MRI revealed that he had three tumors on his spine. They were stage four cancer. The Mayo Clinic prescribed a strong combination of chemotherapy. Ken had surgery to remove the largest tumor. It was a difficult surgery, and it required several blood transfusions. But the surgery did provide some relief. After the chemotherapy, the, the doctors prescribed radiation treatments. These really took a toll on Ken. By December of 98, the doctors told us that we had exhausted our treatment options. In January of 99, Ken and I both came to a sense of acceptance and peace that was beyond understanding. I had lost my dad when I was 30 years old. With his death, I experienced such loss and anger at his passing. I didn't have a strong faith at that point in my life. I felt I couldn't let God see my fear and anger. I thought asking God for help was a sign of weakness. I was not brought up in church as a child, but I had a great curiosity about God and church and things of faith. I saw other children going to church and I heard them talk about God but I had no personal relationship with Christ. This personal connection with God was the missing piece of my life. During Ken's illness, God became very real to me. It was our faith in God that made it manageable for both Ken and me. Prior to my husband's illness, I found myself turning from God when times got difficult. My own fears were preventing me from having a close relationship with God. It wasn't until I developed a daily prayer life that I noticed the change. As my prayers grew more specific and persistent, I realized how much they had an impact. I could feel God's love, and I knew that he was there for me. James 4.8 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That was a verse I could relate to daily. The other factor that led me to Jesus Christ was the overwhelming love and support from Christian friends that God had placed in my life. It was their continual prayers and support that lifted me up. Their examples encouraged me to love and serve others. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. After Ken's death, I wondered what I would do. I was a single mom with three kids, age 11, 16, and 18. I moved my family off of our acreage and into Raymore. I went to work full time. God guided and provided, and with the help and encouragement of others, we were doing well. Then I got a phone call from the FBI. 
They told me that my husband's pharmacist, Robert Courtney, was being charged with diluting the chemotherapy doses that he had been giving his patients. The pharmacist had diluted 98,000 doses from 400 doctors for 4,200 patients. My husband was one of the patients that received these diluted doses. With that phone call, everything came flooding back. The feelings of loss, anger, disappointment, and now even betrayal. But once again, God came near and he gave me the power to forgive. When I first learned of the diluted chemo drugs, I was in a state of disbelief that any human being could intentionally commit an act that hurt so many people. My shock turned to feelings of anger and bitterness as I started reliving the past and thinking, what if? What if Ken had received the prescribed dosage? I turned to God to give me the strength to let go of the past, and I realized that forgiveness was putting the matter into God's hands. Isaiah 43:18 says, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. Well, that is easier said than done, but by forgiving, I did not actually have to excuse the issue. I just had to turn it over to God and let him deal with the offender. It brought me a sense of peace and hope and it allowed me to move forward with my life. In 2008, some friends invited me to Rockbrook. I immediately noticed how friendly and welcoming everyone was. I loved that I felt so comfortable and I loved how the church glorified God. I was baptized in 2010. I took the membership class and I became a member of Rock Brook Church. I got involved in a ladies' small group. My small group ladies have been a wonderful influence in my life. They are a strong group of women who have challenged me to grow in my personal relationship with God. They have confirmed God's love for me in every situation. I went through growth track and I got involved on the Greeter Dream Team. I have actually been through step three and four of growth track twice. Each time I learned even more about how God has shaped me for his purpose. I look forward to going through these steps again. Each day as I see the sunrise and the amusing beauty of the world God has created and the life he has given me, I thank him so much for his grace and presence in my life. I thank him for my family and for my church family who has seen me through so much. And I look forward to seeing my husband, Ken, in heaven one day. Would you bow your head with me, please? We just wanted to make sure we had a moment this Easter, uh, that this Easter service, this Easter weekend, that this time, that this season in your life would not pass you by. That you could have a moment with God right here, right now. God is here. God is with you. Maybe you have declared your faith for God many Easters. Maybe there was a time a while back that you made a decision for Christ, but you feel God pulling you back or into a deeper deeper level of that with him today maybe you have never before trusted Christ and I would encourage you right now to make this a moment with God in your heart in your mind 
and to pray to Him. God will hear you. Say, God, I want to have a real faith in You. I want to be a trusting believer in You. God, I see what You accomplished for me. God, I can't get it right. I can't do it right. I can't live a righteous enough life, a perfect enough life. God, I need your help. I need your freedom. God, I I can't even roll away the stone, but you roll away the stone. And I'm asking you this Easter morning to roll away the stones of things that I thought were dead and gone in my life. Thank you for coming to earth, living a perfect life I could never live. Thank you for dying in my place on the cross because of my sins. Thank you for rising from the dead, proving you are God and that you have the power to forgive sin and you have the power over my life, the victory over my life. And Today I want to accept your gift of grace, your gifts of goodness. I need your forgiveness, your mercy. God, thank you for paying for my sins. And I want to trust in your wisdom and your strength. I want to hold on to your promises when times are tough. And I want to be raised to eternal life with you in heaven. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.